This is The Love Podcast, and welcome back, everybody. Season 3, Episode 2, and today we are really lucky to be hosting Mr. Matthew Johnson. Mr. Johnson is a Welsh broadcaster and mental health activist who is probably best known for presenting in the Interactive Hub on ITV. That was way back in 2010 until 2013. He also co-hosted Channel 5's OKTV, but importantly, Mr. Johnson is a mental health campaigner, activist, and ambassador. He's also the founder and creator of the thecheckin.co. He's doing some great work at the moment, which we're really excited to delve into. And we're just excited to be hosting Matthew today. And we've got some great topics lined up. And we just wanted to say thank you, Matt, for joining us, taking the time out of your busy schedule. How are you? How you've been? Uh, and how, how's life been treating you, basically? Yeah, thank you very much for having me on, first and foremost. Uh, I'm good. I'm good, uh, um, and life has been treating me okay, uh, as life does, but um, it's been very busy over the last few months, and um, I'm sure I've got a lot to, to talk about. I'm quite interested to, to hear what you have to say and what questions you have, uh, and again, it's, a, it's an absolute privilege uh, to be talking to you, and thanks very much for having me on. Thank you for coming on. It's uh, interesting you say that. Um, we're going to delve right into probably the most important question so far since you're interested in what we're having since we're the loathe podcast um we like to ask every guest at the beginning of our episodes what their favorite bread is so if you'd like to give us a little bit of insight for that then then let us know oh i love that i thought you were going to come in with a heavy one but um you've come in with the heaviest one because bread <laughs> is a good topic um, right. i'm a big fan of bread uh that's a very good question. Uh, there's, there's, there's many choices because you have to throw in nostalgia with bread because um, sometimes there's nothing better than a really cheap white bread, thick cut sandwich with crisps in it, a crisp sandwich. Oh, yeah. You know that cheap white bread that I used to have, like when we all used to have when we were kids. I love that. But obviously right now, you know, I'm 40. I live in London, kind of like a sourdough. I love I a bit you were of tomato that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I like. I'm not afraid to say it. I'm not afraid for my family and friends in Wales to to hear this come out of my mouth. I like sourdough. <laughs> Beautiful. Thank you so much for that. I mean, uh, you you've been really busy lately. Uh, going to Wimbledon, uh, part of the busy <laughs> schedule. How how was that? How was your time there? Was there any particular player that you you wanted to see with? Uh. To be honest, I, I, I feel a bit of a fraud every time I go to Wimbledon because I don't really follow tennis. What I am a fan of is an experience. And, and, and I've lived in London now for about 13 years. And I absolutely love certain English events or English kind of pastimes. And I just got to, I think Wimbledon is one of, the, one of my favourites. You know, it's very lovely there. The grass is always well cut. Everybody's dressed up, the whole Pims thing, the whole kind of extravagance of it all. I really enjoy it. So I had a great day. I have no idea who I saw or, or I don't care. And I feel really bad because I know people queue up and stuff like that. And I'm very privileged. I understand I'm very privileged to get um, tickets to go and see these things. But I, like I say, once a year, maybe every couple of years, I go to Wimbledon. I enjoy the day. Don't ask me about the tennis. Beautiful. I um, I'm not English. I've got no real connection to that culture. It's all it's all alien to me. But it, it sounds like good fun. Yeah. Well, I well, if it's English or if it's just kind of 
you know, I come from a working class background. Um, my lifestyle isn't necessarily clean cut and perfect and all very twee. But it's nice to jump into a world that seems like it's make believe. It's it's like it's like a like a time capsule, if you know what I mean. So it's it's kind of a, it's like self care. It's like going to a garden center for lunch just to chill out. Brilliant. It's um it's been a while since since we last spoke in in one on one like this. Uh, it was I think back in November twenty twenty two or was it maybe perhaps December, and you came to to speak at the Oxford Union at this mental health panel and. Um, it was it was great fun. I was I was wondering now in reflection and hindsight how you found that experience. Oh wow! It was um, I've got a lot to say about this. It it came at the most perfect time in my life uh, to be to have the honour of being asked to speak at the Oxford Union and and especially with the, the the panel that I had and and the way that we talked about all of our past experience and the way that we were allowed to speak and 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 just. Having that as, an, uh, that as an experience to to learn more from people and to learn from an experience was just just wonderful. Uh, uh, and, and, and since then, it's been really interesting. It, it feels like it was a really wonderful um, like benchmark or, or line in the sand or, or, or marking in the road for me. It was it was a definite um, poignant period in my life. I was just turning forty that week. Um, and I don't know about you guys, but you know, often I, I I get quite insecure about what I'm doing. So for a long time, I've been a journalist and a broadcaster. You know, you just you talked about I uh, just worked on this morning and things like that. But you know, I've been working in television behind the scenes uh, and as a journalist since since I can remember really over 25 years. So um, for me to be in a period of my life where I'm now combining that with my mental health experience. And my knowledge that I've obtained through uh, my mental health experience and with working with professionals, I always question myself. I always wonder, what well, do, do I have the authority to talk about these things? Uh, what what am I saying? I'm sure there's somebody else out there that can do this better. Um, I get quite insecure about it all the time, and to be asked to do something so prestigious as to speak at the Oxford Union at that period in my life was was kind of the reassurance I needed. Uh, not that I always need reassurance, and I don't think that's a very positive thing, but it came at a good time for me, uh, and it really filled my cup. It really made me feel like I was on the right path, now combining my skills as a broadcaster with trying to normalize the conversation about mental health and to provide services to people that actually need it. Uh, I feel like it came at the right time, and uh, and it's, it's, it's um, spurred me into... A period of my life now where I know where I'm going, I know who I am, and I have the confidence to do it. That's really good to hear because I, I, you definitely don't remember, but I was in attendance then. I, I really enjoyed your speech, but um, I guess TV was what kicked it all off, starting from regional broadcasting. Um, but mm. I don't want to tell your story for you, so could you just tell our listeners a little bit about how you got into the TV industry and sort of how this all started? Yes, of course. I um. I left school pretty early. I didn't. Uh, I didn't do my A levels, etc. I didn't go to university. I, I grew up in an environment where um, I don't. I didn't feel necessarily comfortable uh, within myself. I uh, that kind of working class attitude was kind of around me constantly, and I, 
And I desperately really, really wanted to go and do something fun and exciting. I wanted to do a job that I, I was excited to go and see. I knew that from a very young age. Um, I, I knew I wanted to be in an environment that was creative and busy and exciting. And I didn't know what that was. So I left school and I had a friend that worked in the media. And I, and I kind of thought this, this, this could be for me. I had no idea what part of the media I was going to be in, but... I just knew that their lunch times were sitting around talking about ideas and having fun. And it seemed like they, they would enjoy going to work, which was a new concept to me because I, I grew up feeling that work had to be miserable and boring and then you'd retire and die or something. And, and I just knew deep down that that wasn't necessarily something that I wanted. And so I just I just crept into the media through the back door. I, I luckily had a friend who, who got me some work experience. I was making people tea as a runner. I was being an extra on um, Welsh language drama. And I kind of just fell into it. Like I say, I loved the environment. So I every day I got up and I was excited to go to work and I was excited to meet new people. I was really, I, I understood how lucky I was and how grateful I was to to be able to do that, considering the background that I had, you know, like the, the mentality of um, that working class mentality was, you know, always around me. So I pushed through TV. I got I did everything I possibly could. I'm going to skip a few things because I, I did some acting in, in Welsh. I didn't speak Welsh at the time. I had to learn everything phonetically. Um, I joined a band. Um, a Welsh language band that we went on tour across the UK and different things. Um, so th these were all amazing experiences that I just said yes to everything, really. And then I kind of I fell into TV broadcasting as a, as a in production. So I, I did running um, and then researching, which um, which is kind of hard work. It's long hours and lots of it for free. Uh, because they want experience. I didn't have any qualifications, so I had to kind of start from the bottom. So lots of my 20s was getting the experience that I needed to get paid, basically. And then I eventually started to get paid at a production company. Uh, then that kind of changed for me. Then I started to script write. I started to utilize the camera and editing software. And it was around about the time when editing and camera work was uh, utilized by runners and researchers. So cameras became cheaper and more affordable and editing software was more transportable. You could, you could take it on the road with you. So they were training young people up like me to be VJs, as they called them, video journalists, really. So, uh, and I was keen. Of course, it did put a lot of sound engineers out of work within newsrooms, etc. Um, but I was kind of part of that new wave of more affordable technology people who were willing to do the work and to do three people's jobs in one, really. So I was very lucky to train and to learn how to do that in Wales. And then I became a journalist at ITV Wales News because the, the newsroom needed young, plucky people that would work for cheap and that would just go out in the car and record the story and write the story and edit the story all themselves. So I took that opportunity. Uh, so I became a journalist at ITV Wales News. Um, I was a reporter then for an arts show and and then fast forward I had a really bad day at the office because a friend of mine the drummer in the stereophonics Stuart Cable passed away um, and I had to cover his story in the newsroom and that was a line too far for me uh, I think I was like 
I remembered why I got involved in this industry and I wanted it to be fun. And that wasn't a fun day, um, and obviously, for obvious reasons. And, and the next day, literally the next day, I saw this morning on the screen in the newsroom. And I went, I'm going to go and work on there. I'm going to go and work on this morning. That sounds fun. Gino DeCampo was messing around with like powder or flour on his hands and he was making some jokes and everybody was laughing. And I was like, that sounds like fun. Um, so I, I literally, I edited my, edited my showreel in about an hour, sent it to the boss of this morning who luckily picked up the email. And I had a meeting with him at the end of the week and I was working on the show three weeks later. So it all happened really quickly. And that's my kind of career path from 17 to 27. So 10 years kind of did as much as I could for free, took every single opportunity I possibly could and, and worked my, my nuts off, really. I just worked as hard as I possibly could to get onto national television and then, and then so on and so forth. That, that's, uh, that's really interesting. I mean... What was that like coming from a working class background, then then rising? Not well, I wouldn't say rising specifically, but but then becoming part of that, what must have been a slightly foreign culture. What, what was that experience like? It was. That's a very interesting question. I found it difficult. I I found it very difficult because I was I was in in the world of media. You are you are paired with people from very different backgrounds. So I would be. A researcher alongside somebody that came from a privileged background, quote unquote, um, that might have had a father or a, or a mother or an uncle that was in the industry that's got them the opportunity, and and they were able to be an intern because they, they their, their parents would be able to fund them, which I didn't have that as an opportunity, and and I had to deal with a lot of resentment with that. There was a, a lot of people. The nepotism was was quite was. I think it's better now. It used to be very rife within the media because obviously, not many people can work for free for long, you know, and and um, without having to work in bars and restaurants and stuff, which is what I did. And I was very I was very lucky as well with the people around me to to help me, but. You know, as far as checking in with privilege was really, and checking in with my, my resentment because, you know, even I used to see people that went to university as privileged because I used to think it was something financial that you, you, you could only do if you were financially stable. So um, the jump in culture, and of course as well, uh, it took me a long time to get used to not feeling guilty about having days off during the week because... In the media, you work different. You work solidly for like three weeks and then you have a week off or it's not like a nine to five. Uh, most of it's not like a nine to five. So I I couldn't get my head around. My, my cognitive dissonance was very strong. I couldn't necessarily get used to the fact that A, I was enjoying my job. I felt guilty about that. Uh, B, um, I, I, I used to resent people around me for having privilege and and. and opportunities and and as well it was just getting used to the idea that you can have few a few days off during the week or you can uh, enjoy your job and and it can life can be quite exciting it took me a long time to get used to that it took me probably over 15 years within the industry to get used to the fact that I belonged there 
and um, and I had a space there because for a long time it didn't feel like I had a space in that industry. Wow, wow. Uh, just following up from that, you said you didn't feel you had a space in that industry, and you also mm-hmm. mentioned that you think it might be a bit better now. Do you feel that the industry has changed? I mean, you mentioned how you had VJs in your time, so it was already changing then, and I feel in that sense it is an ever-changing industry. What what kind of new yeah. new things do you see now as perhaps even AI-related or related to post-COVID times? Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I... I, I know for a fact I've seen the, the changes that I've seen in the last 20 years have been um, have been quite drastic. I've seen, I've seen amazing strides that are, that are not perfect in diversity. And diversity doesn't necessarily mean uh, race or sex. I, I, I think it's from p- different areas uh, and regions around the UK. I've definitely seen that. I've definitely seen a more of an acceptance in regional dialect. So... For example, I remember growing up and, and I, the, the attitude that I used to have in my head from people was you're going to have to speak properly if you want to go and present on the BBC. You're going to have to maybe get rid of your accent a bit and slow down and have a better dialect or a more cleaner, crisper RP dialect. And I don't see that as a thing anymore. I think people are, from all backgrounds are being celebrated more. And of course, like I said, internships weren't a thing really when I was in the industry it was just you work for free and then you get the experience and then when you went and wanted to get a new job you had to have like two years experience or a certain kind of um, degree or your father had to be a producer on the show you know that that was kind of prevalent in my experience so to see that change I think there's a million miles to go when it comes to diversity when it comes to race uh, I would really love it if we could create more opportunities for uh, for people uh, from all aspects, uh, from all parts of the UK. I, I think that's getting that's definitely a lot better, but it could do a lot better. Um, and I just think there's more programs in place at broadcasters to do that, whether they've been put under pressure or not. I think that definitely the BBC are getting better at it. ITV, when I was there, were getting better at it, and I think it's. It's really important that we, we, we have our regional outputs still. They were definitely under fire in the newsroom when I was there. You know, the finances were getting more and more squeezed from regions. I know they used to call Wales a region, which, which used to annoy every single one of us. But I think it's really important to have these voices. When I was, when I was um, at ITV Wales, um, I think I was probably one of the last people to be a... Um, and a face or, or a regional talent that went from region to network without having to do like a reality show or something. It seemed like the it seemed like back then the pool of talent used to come from regional TV, regional news. Um, you obviously used to come from people who had experiences from maybe like a pop group or something or a TV show uh, to become a presenter at least. And now I've seen that kind of change. So, um, and I think the world of the internet's changed everything as well because there's so many more, so many people that have better access to, to cameras and software. So there's so many more reporters and presenters, people having their own YouTube channels. Uh, I think the pool has got a lot bigger. So I hope that broadcasters are reflecting the new wave and the new abundance of talent that's out there. And I think that's happening. 
you know, like reality stars, YouTubers, the transition from YouTube or reality to become a, a journalist isn't perfect because it's a big jump. It's a big difference. Like I used to make all my mistakes from in, in regional news and on my art show. I used to edit them. I used to be the guy that went, oh my God, you're awful. You're terrible. And I think now Same. what's happening, the jump from, yeah, the jump from, the jump from being like on Love Island or, or, or some reality show or from your bedroom on your YouTube channel to a broadcaster is so big because the experience is different. The control is out of your hands when you're working with a broadcaster. And I think that's something that I find very interesting because I, I think there's a big opportunity to, to have different voices if the connection between um, your bedroom or YouTube or your channel or your reality show or, or, or your regional news. I think there needs to, I feel there needs to be a better link between the two. But to answer your question, I do believe he's got a lot better because of these bigger opportunities. And I think there's been a conscious um, approach to try and get more varied, diverse voices, which I think is so important because of representation. Representation for me is so important. Um, I didn't have really anybody to aspire to be as a, as a um, Welsh journalist. We had our regional Welsh presenters, etc., And, um, you know, and, and now uh, representation from, for everybody, for all parts of society is incredibly important, whether it's uh, having somebody that's gay on TV um, and black and from any ethnicity or, or somebody that's open about their mental health that's still doing a job. Representation is so important. And I see it now and, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm totally aware of the importance of having, uh, of people having a voice. It's so important to have that uh, for people to aspire to. Thank you. That's some, some really good insight there. Yeah, I think it's, um, you've talked about even from regional TV or from being a YouTuber, it's sort of this huge jump. Everything is out of your control. I guess TV mm. is really the epitome of public speaking, you know, and you're, you're, you're speaking to basically a whole nation often, and that can obviously be uh, more difficult for people from underrepresented backgrounds. But I just wanted to ask in that way for our listeners, what have you learned about confidence and public speaking over your years? Because you said you've made mistakes and, you, and you've slowly come to learn. What, what like takeaways do you have from that? Oh, wow. That's a, another good question. Um, I, I believe that, and, and you picked up on it very well, the, the, the confidence I have in public speaking has come from failing a lot. It's come from a, a tiny bit of arrogance to try and get it right. And some sort of petulance that I used to have when I was a kid um, to be better, even though I'd have a bad experience. And, and my, 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 my experience within public speaking is just developed because I am more in tune with what, I, what I'm saying and who I am. I mean, I, the better and more aware I am of the person that I, that I am and what I want to say, the better I've got at public speaking. And I, I sometimes have a nightmare experience and sometimes it's difficult and I get very nervous in certain situations and scenarios. Um, I know youth is very handy when you want to be more confident. For some reason, I was much more confident when I was younger. But um, my, my advice always in this area, if I'm mentoring anybody to, to come up through the ranks in TV or to be, to be a public speaker, is to be truthful is, and be true to yourself and do the work and do the research. I think it's so important 
if um, I remember when I used to be thrown onto a, like a red carpet scenario with This Morning and I'd be interviewing the biggest movie stars in the entire world in a really compressed and kind of volatile environment because you've got like three questions. It's so noisy. The stars are really abrupt and they really are in a rush to go and interview, be interviewed by everybody. So you've got to be very concise. And I always felt that um, I always learned in those experiences. So throwing myself into the deep end was always a good option for me. And you'd always learn when you're under pressure. But the research element, I, I was very lucky to have uh, someone in my life that encouraged me to do that work. So if I was going to any premiere, I would know everything about that film. I'd know everything about all the stars in that movie and the producers and every single element that, and even people that might turn up. Um, friends of these stars and often that would happen like you'd get like random thing like Elton John would turn up and you'd be like I haven't researched for him and I probably would have like just in case and I can't stress that enough because when you've got that foundation of that knowledge or that spotting as I used to call it um, you just get better at it you because you can fall back on that information and I I always found that to be the case. And sometimes you get thrown into situations to do public speeches. I get it done all the time. I get people to ask me to give like rousing speeches before some walk or, or marathon or something. And I haven't prepared for it. But because of all the experience and being thrown into the deep end, because of the, the confidence I've got from doing the work and, and, and over time, it's, it's got a lot better for me. And I can't stress enough uh being present being present is one of the most important things i think to to at least give yourself a fighting chance in a high pressure situation so um i've always noticed through experience that if i was if i was ever bad at my job which i will be and i have been if i've ever made a mistake if i've ever um maybe embarrassed myself um, in front of anybody in, in, in a, an interview environment or in a high-pressured speech environment, or if I've made mistakes, the mistakes have always come from not being present. And I think there's a lot of things to do to get yourself present, like obviously doing the research and experience and making mistakes and getting the confidence, but getting myself into a place where I'm in the moment has been the most um, beneficial thing for me. Thank you. That's, that's really interesting. And it's something that I feel Ollie and I and, and the Low Podcast can can take for our our, um, our own use. We uh, we started off I think a bit more shaky, but we're getting getting more confident. And I understand this this feeling of being embarrassed. I recently met Ed Norton. He, he came to the union and I interviewed him. And 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 he's like you to a certain extent you feel you have that feeling of oh his family's here as well. I don't want to keep him waiting. And and that feeling of being embarrassed. I wanted to link that to what you arguably most known for your mental health advocacy. And I was mm. wondering how your background in television, media and interviewing, has that influenced your approach to mental health advocacy and, and kind of saying, oh, you need to be more present in this moment, for example? It, it, for me, it's, it's fantastically similar. It's the same thing. So what I've learned through interviewing people, which is my favorite part of what I do really, is to be able to listen. I think that's one of the most important things. Um, and yes, you might. I might have a list of questions for somebody, but to listen to the answer and to react to the answer and to actually have a connection 
has really helped me uh, and is and I and I believe made me better as an interviewer and as a broadcaster and as somebody that now does that on Instagram lives I interview people all the time um I have uh, talk groups that I I have um and always 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 it's so abundantly important and clear to me that the most vital thing to do whether it's broadcasting and interviewing or listening to uh, talking to somebody about their mental health is to listen and i think that's the most present you could possibly be because you can be thinking about the next question you're going to ask and stuff like that etc if the interviewee is necessarily giving you that much but it, more often than not when it comes to having open conversations about mental health or having an interview about a movie or or anything it's the same thing connecting with that human being and listening to what they have to say and being present and i think you know uh, a connection and connecting to another human being is probably one of the most important high value things as humans have to do anyway so i'm very lucky that my job um allows me to do that on a regular basis yeah i mean in terms of helping other people and everything and and even helping yourself that con- connection is so so important um I was wondering, like, maybe just on a very individual level, what sort of what would be the one piece of advice you would give if you could express it in one sentence to help somebody on their on their mental health journey? Maybe apart from what you just said. Oh wow! Um, That's there, a there's, there's so many. Uh, no, it's it's it, it's it's a very good question, and and I, it has to go. There's so many answers to this, but. It has to start with the most important thing is loving yourself, and I hate that term. I hate it. I grew up thinking that that was the worst thing anybody could say to you, like, "Oh, he loves himself." Oh God, they love themselves because if you ever showed off, you're 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 the worst person in the entire world. But every single part of your mental health journey. All the processes, all the different tools that you acquire, all the different therapy sessions you might do, all the long walks you go on, all the maybe the retreats that you do or conversations you have, it all starts with you giving a damn about yourself and finding that love for yourself. Love is the start of all of it. And one step at a time, when you start small and you, because from my experience, it, it, you know, for I had I had a really bad experience where I tried to take my own life in two thousand and nine, and 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 I'm still around, obviously. And from that moment, the surge of passion for life has really changed my perspective on everything. If something random and something weird and something special happens when you wake up from a sleep that you never thought you'd wake up from. Your life, my life changed and and it sparked something in me. And, I, and I've been working, trying to work this out for a long time. And it makes me see trees differently. It makes me see people differently. And it makes me have a perspective and a generosity and a compassion and a, and a genuine sense of gratitude for most things. And it makes me love things. It makes me love really, really easily. 
and it makes me love myself. It makes me put myself first sometimes. And it's taken a long time to get to that point, but it started with putting myself first. And I'd like to think that that's loving yourself and caring about yourself and self-care. And um, not that it's been a really easy slope, but if I could say in one sentence, which is what you asked me, I went off on a bit of a tangent then. I would say the, 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 the start to, to, um, to, to, to getting a better mental health is to start by loving yourself. Thank you. That's, that's beautiful. And thank you for sharing your experience. You. I, I wanted to touch on that because you said it's not an easy slope. And I feel some people might have this idea, oh, this person tried to commit suicide and then they suddenly realized the meaning of life and it was all happy from there. But would you be able to give us some insight into, yeah. into for example, after an attempt, for example, from, from anyone? I'm sure it doesn't get instantly better. That might, those ideations might come back, for example, and it is real life after all. And, and yeah, yeah, I, I, yeah. it's complicated. Yeah, it, it is really complicated. We are complicated beings. And I think through my experience, what I've learned, what I've really taken on board is that I had to get to the, the very bottom of my psyche, psyche and my mental health to have that perspective to, to make different, to, to make changes, to, to, to ask myself why I felt that way, to then look at my life and say, what do I need to make, what do I need to change to make my experience more enjoyable? Because, you know, like I was saying, like I was, I was doing things in my personal life and my professional life that was good. I was earning money by then. I was um, a journalist in a job that I enjoyed, but I was still very unhappy. I still suffered from depression. I still wasn't okay in my own mind. And the curiosity after my terrible experience is what got me through and and like I say it's it has been an up and down a bumpy road uh and and it only started to get a lot better for me when I accepted the fact that I needed to do some work on it I accepted the fact that um I needed to talk about this with people and I need to be more open and I needed to like I say put myself first and 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 do the heavy work which has taken a long time. Uh, the the process for me would always be being um, being aware of how you feel, and it took a long time for me to actually understand or know how important being aware of your feelings are. Because before my my suicide attempt, I was just distracting myself from pain with alcohol, with work, with relationships, with everything but facing myself. Um, so what I, what I, what I try to do, um, and I try and encourage people to do before they get to that rock bottom is to be aware of how they feel and have a continuous and continual awareness of your mood. And like you say, love yourself and put yourself first and be curious about where those feelings come from. And, and that's, and that's what I, what I, what I have been like, life doesn't have to get rough before it gets better. But if you test yourself, if you if you take yourself to places that you never thought you could go, like if you did something like, I don't know, I did a marathon straight away, I would rather feel the pain of having to do a marathon and test my mental capacity than have to go through a, a period of true depression and suicide. So for me, I'm trying to I'm trying to encourage people to be more aware of their feelings and to 
tap into um, the reasons why they feel that way, whether it's conditioning, trauma, whether it's a, a life or an environment they grew up in that makes them think in a certain pattern that's destructive to them. Um, so I think when you do that work, you can prevent going to the rock bottom. That's what I'd love to do. I'd love to give people the tools so they are aware of how they feel and then they don't distract themselves with um, anything. I think distraction techniques are really bad. I think feeling your feelings and understanding where they come from are really important. And then when you have this awareness of your feelings and where they come from, whether it's mom and dad or whether it's big brother or big sister or uncle or um, your, 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 your teacher in school that's imposed these, these belief patterns or systems or traumatic experiences that make you believe a certain thing subconsciously or consciously. When you have this awareness of you and the conditioning and everything that is you, as well as your true authentic self, as well as the imposed conditioning, you can then make the steps with therapy to actually try and think in a different way, Re rewire and, 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 and reconfigure your belief pattern and then therefore change your reaction and your pattern to things. So from my experience, I am so hell-bent on getting people to be aware of their feelings and aware of themselves before they go through what I went through. I am so scared of anybody feeling that bad and that down and that depressed that they're in a suicide mentality. I'm so scared of it. Like my, my, my friend that lives on the other side of London only has to stub his toe and I'm like, do you want me to come around? Don't kill yourself. Like I am this, I'm, I need to be unwound a little bit because it's, it's, it can take over because obviously I get people that are going through bad situations online all the time and it's very triggering for me. If I get a message at three in the morning saying I feel down, I will always try and help. But I've, I've got to be really mindful of my own mental health. And I've got to be mindful of my own energy there. But my, through my experience, and I know, I know you'll interview a lot of other people uh, that will say this. Um, through my experience of rock bottom, I really, really would love it if people didn't have to get to that point for them to make a change. Making a change happens early on with education and awareness being aware of your tools, being aware of your, your, your feelings and understanding yourself, loving yourself, putting yourself forward and putting yourself first to know what you need to do for your mental health. All these things I believe could be taught in school. All these things could be taught at university and we could prevent a lot of ill mental health. And I think there's, there's a lot of work to be done. Uh, but it has to happen. We can't, we can't allow rock bottoms to become the changing part, the changing point of people's lives. It's too risky for me. I was very, very lucky, which I deal with a lot of guilt that a friend, two friends of mine have taken their own life. One of my friends reached out to me the night before and I'll never forget it. I'll, I'll never feel comfortable in my own skin because of that. And the guilt that I have that I'm still here and they're not, is with me it's part of me and i learned to live with it and i utilize it and i use it to try and help people now um the worst worst thing for me is to think of anybody going through that so here we are prevention 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 be aware of your feelings have the tools put yourself first all of this stuff is so important to me thank you i mean with with that in mind how, how can we help 
you mentioned not reaching rock bottom. How can we foster this, this more inclusive community, this, this community where we, where we help each other? Because obviously you have experience with it. Uh, you mentioned education as well. How can we help make everyone want to, to help each other? I know it's a very difficult question to answer, but to create a more loving community. I think it's really interesting. I think, um, I'm dealing with that now and I'm trying to work out a way myself because more men than ever are killing themselves. And I was one of them. I was one of these guys. I could have been one of those statistics. Um, and there's pockets of communities that are more open to talk about this stuff and there's pockets of communities that are not. Um, definitely different cultures play a part. Um, awareness and education is a huge part of this. But I, I, I'm, I'm really finding a way at the moment to try and get to different pockets of society, i.e. men. So why are more men than ever killing themselves? We've got to ask them. And I want to find out why and how men feel. And why are more boys turning to people like Andrew Tate for guidance? Um, and why is that happening? Instead, instead of saying, naughty boy, you're bad, that's wrong, that's not how you should think, that's not how you should behave i'm really interested at the moment and i'm really curious as to why what's missing what's andrew tate and these people what are they what are they appealing to what part of these young men's wants and needs are they are they satisfying and i find that very interesting so i think um to try and put it into like a nice little ribbon and a bow for you uh I really believe the way that we're going to connect people and we're going to educate people on these tools and awareness of uh, this is how I feel, this is I deserve to put myself first, is obviously education uh, in schools would be amazing. There's some of the tools like checking in with your feelings and breath work, meditation, yoga as, as a form of getting into the body and understanding all of your body in a soft way um, could be taught in schools. I think there's a misconception that um, I think, especially with men, that we're not allowed to be kind of boisterous or have that energy, and I think that's wrong. I think I don't think anybody's saying to men, "You're not can't you can't be a man." It's 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 more of a case of to be to I don't know for in for every sex to be powerful, you have to be able to be kind and soft and gentle and all these things at the same time. It's okay to be all of these things. And I just think we need to listen to pockets of the community instead of berating them. It would be a really lovely opportunity if we could work together uh, to find out what's best. And I think we can't be naive to think that one technique will work for everybody. You know, to, to reach out, like if there's a million different self-help books out there, not just one. So I think the, the, how, how we speak to people needs to be assessed and how we communicate. Um, would be wonderful to, to, to unite people, really, because this is a really important subject. Awareness and, and, and uh, uh, charities like Movember are amazing because yeah, I know that if I had charities like that when I was going through my difficult time, I, I think I, it might have been a different scenario for me. I think I would have latched on to something like Movember. I really would have got involved in it. Um, and there's other things that I would have gone, what do you mean meditate? What the hell are you on about? But I never, you just don't know if there was more people doing it, if there was more people in the public eye, like, ah, this wonderful interview that I saw yesterday with Gary Neville. And um, who was that footballer? I can't remember his name. 
English footballer, lads. Who did you play with? Oh, uh, no, no. It was a very, very recent interview with an English footballer and Gary Neville yesterday. And they were talking about mental health and they were talking about uh, this footballer uh, was having a difficult time. Anyway, I'll find that out in a second. Um, the, the more people from uh, different parts of your society... Deli Ali. Deli Ali. Yes, that's the one. Deli Ali. I don't know my English footballers that well. I'm sorry, lads. So there was this, there was this wonderful interview between Gary Neville and Deli Ali. And um, it was a really open and vulnerable conversation. And I think the things like these are really important because we talked earlier about representation. So when you have these men who young men aspire to be having these conversations and then getting praised for it and then them seeing the benefit from it can only be really brilliant for young men. Again, and I think it changes the dynamic of aspiration. It's cool to be open. It's, 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 it's benefit, it benefits, you can scale vulnerability and scale self-care to be better at your job and to be more um, influential on the football pitch and all these types of things. So I think it would be really, really interesting if we listened to Pockets of Society more. We looked at who the role models were. And we looked at why they're working and why, 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 what could we do to replicate uh, that. I really think that Andrew Tate is appeasing to pride in men. He's basically saying, if you want to be proud of yourself, if you want your dad to love you, you've got to have a Lamborghini and loads of bitches, Right. And that's wrong, as we know, but what he's doing is saying, like, if you want to feel pride, if you want to be the king of the castle, if you want to be the alpha male, this is what you need to do. And we all know, you know, the alpha male thing doesn't exist, but pride does. Making yourself proud of yourself is always something there. There's so many other ways of doing that. There's so many really wonderful ways of you know, making yourself really proud and then therefore making everybody else around you proud. Because if you lived your life trying to make your parents proud, I'm sorry, that's a very slippery slope sometimes because it might not be what you actually want to do. And by the time you get to that thing, your parents, are like, they don't, you know, they, they could always say, oh, whatever you do is fine, but as long as you're a doctor, like, what if you don't want to be a doctor? It's all these things. And I think it all comes down to doing yourself a good service and making yourself pride and reevaluating what success actually is. You know, like what is successful? Uh, is it having loads of money or is it being happy in your life and doing good things of being and being of good service and connecting with people and being able to wake up in the morning and, and feel content? That's my idea of what success is. I know when I was nine, it was being slashing guns and roses. And he was being a multimillionaire and all those types of things. And that kind of wears off. So I've rambled on again, but um, listening to people uh, would be wonderful. And um, having this awareness of mental health and education is super important. And bringing pockets of society together to listen to them. You know, like, like you guys, you know, Oxford University, you know, I know that you're doing wonderful things when it comes to mental health awareness. I would love it if you could meet my friends at the Prince of Wales boxing gym in Cardiff because you're all the same. And there's this thing that we're all different, but we're not. We're all the same. We all want the same things. And I really love it if that connection could happen, you know? Thank you. Yeah. Um, I think it, it's interesting you bring up Andrew Tate, actually, because he's so, sort of such a big topic for people my age. Yeah. 
about whether he's being truly toxic or, or whether he's a, appealing to something true. And I think maybe there is an element of, of men feel like they're lacking this masculinity, this ability to be proud of themselves and confident. And yet mm. the kind of being shut off and et cetera that Andrew Tate is advocating for is obviously very problematic, even though it brings that. So how do you think we can look to creating like a better version of masculinity for men to aspire to and that can like ultimately make them more fulfilled so they don't feel like they have to go to people like yeah, yeah, and I think that's really important. I don't know. I, I, I want to ask these young, young men. I think that's the key. Like, instead of just saying, we need to get better role models, you go like, how? Have you talked to the kids that, that subscribe? Have you gone on the internet? Instead of trying to get them cancelled or trying to get them taken off the internet for having an opinion, have you looked at why they have that opinion? Lots of these young men don't have great role models. They might not have a father figure in their life or they might have had a the, the opposite of a positive person in their life. So they're looking desperately. We're all looking for people to latch onto, to, to help us, you know? And I, and I think I understand why young people would turn to somebody like that. I get it. Uh, do we need more examples of more positive role models? Probably, but at the same time, and we only ever hear the bad things about like professional footballers, but considering how many of them are there, they're doing really amazing things. The charity work, the, the, the stuff, you hear about the odd scuffle or bad thing, but more often than not, these footballers now, because of PR purposes and, and their publicists, are doing good things and they, they are aspirational, but you've got to look at what the lack of is, I think, what, what people are needing and why they need it. And, and then he, I think what, what Andrew Tate's just doing very smartly, he's filling that gap. He's, he's going really polarised. He's going really one end of the spectrum, and he's attaching himself to a need and a want that these young people have. He's filling the gap very smartly and utilising social media. And I think, like I said earlier, I think asking these young men their opinions on stuff is really important. Like from a very young age, like you know, men and women need to be listened to because everybody's growing up very quickly. Can you, I, I can't imagine having the internet when I was a kid. It's, 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 it's mental to me. Like, you know, my nephew now playing on like an iPad when he's eight and I'm like, wow, that, and the interaction that people have, you grow up very quickly. And I think one of the most important things to do is to listen to them, to see what they need. Um, and, and when people have their needs listened to and met um, and are treated like individuals, because this is the thing, you know, one size doesn't fit all. I, 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 you know, having a Lamborghini might be right for the one person, but it's not right for everybody. You know, what your definition of success and happiness is different from somebody else's. Your mental health journey is different to everybody else's. Your conditioning is different to everybody else's. Your aspirations are always different. Your needs and wants and goals very daily and weekly. We are so nuanced, we are so complicated. And for one person to, you know, to, to tell people one size fits all, and this is all you need to do, this is the checklist to happiness and to success is wrong. But having an open dialogue with these young people and, and finding out who they are, I guarantee, you know, if when these people are listened to and are allowed 
to find out who they are and what they want for themselves in the right way instead of being told what they should want. I think we'd see more solid, knowledgeable, compassionate and present young people. And I think that would be a really good start to be able to make up your own minds for yourself instead of being influenced by anybody, positive and negative. Yeah, thank you. It's it's interesting discussion regarding Tate. It's just all over the news right now. You you mentioned something interesting regarding the, the human condition being very nuanced and everyone has different conditioning. So I wanted to link that to mental health and that mental illness can be a chemical condition which you can't control. And then at the same time, there are certain practices that can help mitigate mental illness, that can help us on our mental health journey. So following from that, I was, I was wondering, to what extent do you see people as being personally responsible for their mental health, for their mental illness and, and their subsequent actions? Yeah, it's a really good question because I, I'm really cautious of, about that personal responsibility. And I know from my perspective, I can, I can see all sides of this conversation, really. Um, there are definitely m- many different types of mental illness. There are definitely different types of scales of those mental illnesses in which people can be on. Um, and you can see it. I think more people are struggling day in, day out with different things. And, and, and I can see it all, all the time. I can speak on behalf of myself only, um, where I've experienced the lows, the, high, the, the very big, deep lows of depression. And, and I'm still trying to work out whether that's a chem- chemical thing within my brain composition. Or if I did things differently, I might not have felt like that. So I'm learning from my experience. I'm in, utilizing tools. Like I say, med- uh, meditation is really good for me. Uh, breath work and journaling and checking in with how I feel helps me ground myself, Have helps me have that self-awareness so I... I can navigate my day a lot easier. And I feel like I'm getting to grips with my own mental composition and my, the blueprint and my belief system within my own brain. There's definitely, there's definitely a lot of people struggling and all, all that can help that situation would be medication and therapy. And that's high-end levels of OCD, depression, anxiety, ADHD and all the mental illnesses that you can think of and there's a there's a huge need and want for people to give them the time that they deserve and this is where I I really find it really uncomfortable sometimes when I'm at like a mental health panel for a brand say we won't mention any brands and we're talking about hey what about going for a walk if you feel down we want you to have the tools like meditation to help you feel more more um, aware and I want you to be more aware that preparing yourself for moments in your life where you will be down or stressed and anxious, when you have this awareness that life isn't perfect, you can prepare for these things. And I and I feel so bad because this, there was this one time when we were on this panel and I think I was next to some yoga instructor and I was next to a psychiatrist and I was sitting with my own experience. And then somebody went, hey, um, I've got a question. What do I do? I've got OCDC and I've been chemically castrated. What advice do you have for me? Go for a walk? And we were, I was like, fuck, man. 
this is why it's really difficult and this is why it's really you have to be very very careful with regards to mental health because there's certain levels and scales in which we have to be mindful of and i think when it comes to like the the time and the 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 the, the impact that we all would have on like the nhs and our public services there's people at the top of that list that need care immediately suicidal thoughts high level depression anxiety ocd etc and, and all all aspects of mental health that are really important and needed right now and there are other types of mental illness that we look at and i see every day and i have every day um that i can manage my own myself if i put myself first and if i care about myself i can i can hopefully have the awareness the tools the people around me my therapist right i'm very fortunate i have the privilege to be able to afford therapy i'm totally aware of that and i think it's really important for any of us people on the internet or in real life to be completely aware that there's certain scales of mental health and everybody deserves the time there's people that deserve immediate help and hopefully we can try and educate people uh to prevent ill mental health for it to get even worse uh so there are elements of accountability and um things that you could do for yourself every single day to either get through a problem or um prevent a problem or to to ease a problem that you've just had and and it often in my experience only it, it often comes down to you and that's what's hard about it that's what the work is they say you know like that's what's difficult about um the work of mental health and doing it is it's it's really hard to sometimes get up and do all these things and and sometimes you you can't and it's really difficult and sometimes you can and it's really beneficial and having that compassion for yourself to do it is really important having the privilege to be able to do it professionally with a professional care is really really important but like i like i was saying like there's people out there that really need that immediate help really desperately need that and there's people out there like me who i can go off and, and look after myself now and again and i'm i'm very grateful that i'm now aware of the tools that i need to help myself but like i said it's only come through a really bad experience for me it really it it was the rock bottom so in a, as a form of prevention i would love it not as a form of accountability as a form of just a normal habit i would love it if it was just like brushing your teeth doing 10 minutes of breath work in the morning and i don't think that's personal accountability i don't think that that cuz i think it puts lots of pressure on people I just like it if everything was normalized. Like all of these like journaling, getting your thoughts onto a page changed my life. Completely changed my life and how I processed my emotions. My we could teach that to people. That that doesn't have to be like your personal accountability is to protect yourself. It's like it can just be normal. Like 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 we normalize having a coffee in the morning. We could normalize taking 10 minutes for yourself for your mental health and i think that's where we could be you know i think that's what's lovely and having that awareness and having that compassion for that people are always going through something some people more desperately and some people not so desperately but we all at some point will have to do some of these things we all do and i think that that's the future would be wonderful if we could all be 
kind to ourselves and have the opportunity to do these things for ourselves. Thank you. That's really powerful. I mean, it's just so complex, but you like, you know, with all the different scales and all the different things that can aggravate it. But, you know, imagining a society where people just do that sort of thing, you know, could stop it being aggravated so often. And but something that is, I find, you know, at university specifically often aggravates it a lot is drinking. And there's these other issues of, of substance abuse and that kind of thing. And if you don't mind me saying, I heard you speak about um, your troubles with drinking in the past. So, so what sort of advice would you have to current or incoming university students when the drinking culture is so strong and intense? And, you know, if you're part of a rugby club, you've you got to sink this pint if, you're, if the pint is too close to the edge of the table. You know, there's all these sort of ridiculous rules. What sort of advice would you give to helping people manage their drinking and, and that kind of thing? Oh, no, I, I, I <laughs> this is the thing. Um, I've been a part of that drinking culture. I was a rugby boy in Kefili, you know, yeah, part of your induction was to drink pints from people's shoes and shit, you know, uh, and so many other wild things um, that are disgusting, to be honest. Um, and, and as much as all that's part of growing up and all that type of stuff. And, and it, for me, it always comes down to when you're checking in with yourself and what you need for you, you're able to say, I'll have one night on, but I'm not doing it every night. You know, when you're, when you're aware of, um, and you're compassionate towards yourself and you're more in tune with who you are, you'll be able to say no more often. And, and, and I, I, cause I don't, I don't want to live in a world where we all have to, cause the, the reality is life happens and these are parts of your life. But if you are aware of what's too much for you, you can, and you have the compassion and love for yourself, you'll stop doing it. Ideally, you know, I know peer pressure is an awful thing and fun is very addictive and I know, and, and alcohol is very Moorish and all the, all the other stuff, very Moorish, but like, Compassion is an incredibly important thing. And I think if I was, if I had kids, it's very difficult for me to give advice when I haven't got my own kids. But like, if I was going to say to my kid, I was going off to university, I say, enjoy yourself, but like, check in with yourself. Just make, check yourself before you wreck yourself. Because you, know, you, you can get yourself into a lot of bother. And the cultures that you have, uh, especially in uni um, or, or in any sort of environment, I think, uh, when you want to prove yourself to people, and and you wanna you you wanna get value, or you wanna you wanna be the the one who can drink the most because that's the way you see the power is. Um, we all know that's not true, but I, I would I would just say like ha when you have this self awareness and this compassion for yourself, and you are you're checking in with yourself on a regular basis, you would know that you feel rubbish. You'd know that you maybe you need to take a week off, um, and it gives you that confidence to say no. And I think that's really important knowing yourself and knowing what your limits are are really important without having to test them to the point where it's no return you know like we learn the hard way all the time and again it goes to let's not learn the hard way let's just try and do it a lot as we go along let's be let's be compassionate let's be realistic what the what the environment is unless unless you want to go and live in a monastery you know if there is a drinking culture, if you don't want to be a part of it, you don't have to be. And give yourself the grace to make up the decisions for you and for your benefit. Uh, and if you're struggling with it, obviously try and seek professional advice. I'm pretty sure at Oxford University, I'm pretty sure in most universities, there's places where you can go. 
if you're struggling with substance abuse or you're struggling with um, your mental health. And I'm and I and as well, correct me if I'm wrong. If one of your mates said to you, "I'm really struggling. I'm really suffering. I'm like I can't think straight. I really can't stop drinking. I think I'm in a bad pattern." What would you say? Ah, oh, just get over it and get another drinking. You'd be like, "Oh my god." Shit, can I help you out? Thanks for telling me. Is there anything I can do? And I think having an open dialect with your friends is really important. And also being the friend that lets people know that if you're struggling, you can go to them. You know, that that accountability for the people that can help is so important. You know, act, being actively open and saying, if you are struggling, you can come to me. You know that. Tell your friends individually. It sounds so awkward and cheesy and... and and fake, but you know how it's very difficult for a human being that's struggling to communicate their needs. You've got to make that as easy as possible. You've got to, if you love somebody, if you like somebody, lay it on thick. You can't let it up to chance. You can't, no, they'll, they, they know that they'll come to me. Let them know. Put out a post on Instagram or something just saying, like, by the way, you can come to me individually at any time. We're all, it's a safe space. I think those, those types of things. That type of culture needs to be put into place because we can't deny that there's party cultures and drinking cultures. We can't deny that's a fact of life and people do it. But what we can then do is put things into place where people can feel safe if they're struggling. And um, when you do do that, people hopefully will feel as if they can open up if they're struggling with any of these, these kind of traditions. Let's create new traditions where we're there for people at the same time. Thank you. That's, that's really... Beautiful. And, and before we, we wrap up uh, what's been a really uh, fun interview and, and actually very educational interview, um, I wanted to touch on some of the really important work you're doing and, and let you perhaps highlight some of the specific initiatives or projects you've been involved in as a really great mental health advocate. You've got the checkin.co, uh, which, which yes. I see is doing quite well. And I, I was wondering yeah, if you could highlight some of the, the stuff you're doing right now, what you're involved in and what's coming next. Yeah, thank you. Um, well, at the moment, uh, the check-in is evolving from a really popular kind of online uh, Instagram project to to make people feel inclusive and to provide mental health tools for people for free, which I think is very important. Um, that's going to evolve to a, a physical uh, event where people can come, check in, learn to check in, learn to try and become present have a better awareness of why they feel a certain way. And then we're going to look at uh, finding uh, a way to in, enforce new habits in your life so you can live a happier life. So we're, we're developing like a retreat, we're developing like a day uh, course, and we're developing a very exciting kind of like a festival idea. Um, so it's not necessarily like a retreat or a course. It's more of like a get-together with people, um, of like-minded people. So that's growing. Then it's going to be a, more of a wider online presence. And I'm writing a book to go with that as well. Um, so that book writing thing is coming along slowly but surely. Um, as well, I'm developing a documentary at the moment with a friend of mine. Um, along the same lines of checking in. Um but looking more widely at the true purpose of why we're here, uh, we're looking at uh, whether it's uh, our true connection to ourselves, is our connection with, with other human beings, our connection to ourselves and other beings is reliant and dependent on us being 
aware of who we are and being able to show that to people and be vulnerable enough to say, this is who I am. I'm sharing this with you instead of suppressing who you are or suppressing yourself. So we're, we're looking at a, um, a format documentary uh, for that at the moment. We're developing that. Um, and as far as I'm concerned with my life right now, uh, it's been a really interesting... I feel like I've lived about five lifetimes in my life, you know, the things I've seen and done. Um, turning 40 was amazing for me. And navigating my life, combining broadcasting and mental health awareness is where I am. So I'm really excited about showing people who I am uh, and leading by example and developing a tool and a service that provides free mental health care for people for anywhere in the world. And I'm excited to see where it goes. And, and obviously, I have to mention, I am a really proud ambassador for the People's Postcode Lottery. You might see me in the adverts in my red jacket, giving people 30 grand on the street. But it's an absolute joy. We go to charities. We're, we're currently funding um, Dementia UK for this incredible new service that could change the world. And I'm incredibly proud to be part of an organization that makes people happy. And that is actually changing the world for the better. So... And we've raised over 1.1 billion quid for charity. So I, I, I couldn't wow. be more grateful for where I am with that. Um, wow. I couldn't be happier. I love traveling to Wakefield on a Monday in the rain to give somebody 60 grand. It's my greatest joy. It fills my cup. I'm really interested in how I fill my cup. And I'm really interested in to try and find ways in people to find ways in which people can fill their own cup to do the things that they need to do for themselves and to be a happier person. That's where I am. Wow, amazing, Matthew. It's it's been such a pleasure. Ollie and I, we we were a bit nervous before this interview. Um, you're just so handsome. We were just <laughs> <laughs> so jittery, but it's been amazing. And I was wondering if you had any concluding concluding thoughts. And uh, yeah, uh, a concluding thought is that you're very charming for saying that. Thank you so much. Um, and that's another rule for um, interviewing: is be charming and tell them nice things. Um, I, I don't have many concluding things apart from thank you for doing this. Thank you for for creating this space for um, for your your environment. I know I know all universities need this, and, and I and I wish you all the very best with it. And if there's anything I can do to help in the future when it comes to this, please do not be afraid to ask. Uh, I, I know I'm, I'm I'm abundantly aware that Oxford University will have the the, the, the greatest minds and the future of our society in your hands. So it's really important to me that you have an awareness and compassion for people and, uh, and, 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 and hold mental health in the caring way that you clearly do. So it really is, uh, it really is uh, wonderful to see and, um, and it's given me a bit of hope. So I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. Thank uh, you. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. Thank you, Matthew Johnson. It, it's been amazing. This is The Low Podcast, signing off. Jochen Wout.